The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Strasbourg, 1518. Today it's a part of France, in the historically much contested Alsace region, but back then it was part of the Holy Roman Empire. An empire famous for being none of those things, not holy, not Roman, and not really an empire. It was a confederation of states mostly located in what we now call Germany, founded by Charlemagne in 800 AD, and having lasted until the 1800s, it was a staple of European history. At this time though, things aren't great for the people of Alsace. Famine and droughts had ravaged the area over the past few years, and the Holy Roman Empire was embroiled in many deadly and divisive wars that had peppered the continent, fought over religion, the Catholic establishment and the rising power of Protestantism, and land. Between the wars, famines, droughts, cold snaps, harsh winters, several outbreaks of disease including syphilis, leprosy and smallpox, the people of Strasbourg were at a breaking point, and this was at a time when superstition and fear were widespread enough as it was. It's a summer's day in July. One woman steps out from her house and goes into the streets in the middle of the day. People are going about their business, blacksmiths smithing, merchants buying and selling, carpenters building, all the folk of the town just getting on with their lives. All except this woman. This woman, known to history as Frau Trophea, starts to dance. No music, no singing, just dancing. By herself. In the middle of the street, in the middle of the day. Passers-by give her odd looks. The way she's turning and moving, she's like a woman possessed. And not just swaying either, full on dancing. It's mesmerizing. When night falls, she's still dancing to her own tune, a tune nobody else can hear. Not yet, anyways. The next day, dawn breaks and a watchman patrolling the streets spots her. There's Frau Trophea, still dancing. And she keeps on dancing into the night of the second day. And then the third day, and then the fourth day. Not stopping to eat, not stopping to sleep. By day six, Frau Trophea is no longer dancing. Whether it was exhaustion or simply boredom from six days straight of dancing, we don't know. But what we do know is that by that time a crowd had formed, also dancing. And when she stopped, 34 people had joined her, and they were still going strong. And strong they went, on and on and on. It came to dominate the thoughts of the people of Strasbourg. Why were these people dancing? Nobody seemed to say, and the victims all seemed to be possessed. By the end of the month, over 400 people were dancing, all without break or reprieve. Some were even said to have collapsed and died from exhaustion, strokes prompted by physical overexertion, or heart attacks. Unsurprisingly, the Burgermeisters were at a loss. One thing was certainly clear, though. They needed to put a stop to the dancing. After all, it would not do to have these people creating chaos. Moreover, what if it kept spreading? 
people thought Throuch of Thayer would give up, but now the crowd was in the hundreds and no end was in sight. So the city council gathered together the foremost minds of the area and asked them their opinion. The first thing that was concluded after a brief discussion was that this was not possession or lunacy, mental illness caused by the motions of the moon. The clergy and what passed for scientists back then declared the disease was not of supernatural origin. The second thing they concluded, what historians are most fascinated by, was that the victims were dancing. Not just jerking limb motions that looked like dancing, not strange entranced swaying, full-on actual dancing. According to the reports, most of the dancers were younger women, but it did also seem to cut across demographics. Old and young, male and female, rich and poor, everyone had the dancing fever. After what I'm certain was a rigorous scientific debate, it was decided that this fever was due to hot blood. Now the usual solution of bloodletting, which is exactly what it sounds like, wasn't available. And before you go assuming this was merely the barbaric middle ages, George Washington underwent bloodletting and arguably it killed him in the late 1700s, so it ended more recently than you'd think. But that wasn't practical. The dancing made it hard to do, and 400 people being bled in the street wasn't exactly going to be an easy cleanup job. Still, they needed to release the hot blood and the energy. So, more dancing. The Burgermeisters ordered a stage built, and a band hired and actively encouraged the people to dance. Halls were cleared out, two guild halls and a grain market to be specific, and the dancers were herded onto the stage and into the halls with the music of the band, and they were told to dance the night away. This solved the problem. I am of course joking, this actually massively exacerbated the problem, and by the end of that solution, even more people than before were dancing. As a matter of fact, it's thought that by putting the dancers into full view of a morbidly fascinated public, this actually caused the disease, if you call it that, to spread more rapidly. It's a bit like making a show out of somebody with a seriously contagious illness, all you're doing is providing vectors for that to spread. The strange part is, this wasn't even the first time this had happened. In Aachen, also in the Holy Roman Empire, nearly 200 years earlier, one of the first dancing plagues erupted and spread across Europe like a wildfire. Between the 1200s and the 1600s, multiple instances of large-scale dancing plagues had occurred. It even earned itself a name, St. Vetus's Dance. The reason for this was that it was believed that St. Vetus, or St. John the Baptist, would punish the insufficiently faithful by cursing them with a the desire to dance endlessly. Thus, the dancers were sometimes heard to shrines of St. Vetus or St. John, where prayers were said with the hope to cure them and their dancing mania. Mixed results, as you'd expect. The earliest instance was the 7th century. In the 1200s, one instance of 200 people dancing on a bridge apparently had caused its collapse, and those injured were miraculously healed at a chapel of St. Vetus. Go figure. In 1237, a procession of children danced a jig from Erfurt to Arnstadt, some 20 kilometers. It was around this time that the story of the Pied Piper, who leads rats and then children out of towns to the tune of a dancing jig, became popularized. As a matter of fact, Strasbourg itself seemed to actually be a hub. That outbreak in Aachen had spread to Strasbourg once, and another outbreak occurred in 1418. The 1518 outbreak was actually at least the third outbreak of contagious manic dancing. It's just that this outbreak was perhaps the best documented of them all, since the 1500s seemed to be the apogee of dancing plague activity. Then, just like that, it stopped. And I don't just mean the Strasbourg plague, I mean dancing plagues in general. What had once been a relatively common, if bizarre and unexplained phenomenon across medieval and renaissance Europe, ended. 
after the 1600s had passed, almost no instances of dancing plagues occurred again in Europe, and in modernity we basically haven't seen any. But that area in particular, the border of France and Germany from the Low Countries all the way down to Switzerland seemed to have been a hotbed of dancing mania. Was it mass delusion? Something in the water or the food? Maybe a curse sent down by a saint to punish the wicked? Today we look into the facts behind the dancing plague of Strasbourg. Today on Demystified we look at the Dancing Plague of Strasbourg. We've mostly covered the stories that happened in the introduction. In July of 1518, one woman started dancing in the streets of Strasbourg for about six days without stopping. This gathered a crowd of dancers that went from 34 to about 400 within a month. The city council tried to solve the problem by encouraging the dancers to get it out of their system, but this made the problem far worse and the crowd grew even more. And then they stopped. What really fascinated me about this though, and I didn't know this until my research, was that this wasn't even the first plague to hit Strasbourg, it was at least the third. That entire area of eastern France and western Germany was apparently a hotbed of dancing plagues. One man we're going to be referencing a lot in this work is John Weller, who wrote a number of books on both this dancing plague and other instances of what's called mass psychogenic illness. What that is, is when a group of people, from as few as a couple dozen to as large as thousands, start acting in a strange way with seemingly no cause nor defined reason for end. And what constitutes MPI runs the gamut too, from meowing like a cat as a group of nuns in a convent once did, to laughing so hard you die from it like the people of Tanzania in 1962. As I mentioned in the intro, there were many instances of dancing plagues. It's just that the 1374 Arken outbreak and the 1518 Strasbourg outbreak have the most contemporary evidence, to the point where the Strasbourg outbreak is considered verifiable historical fact. You can talk all day about St. Vitus saving a bridgeload of dancers in a miracle, but you can't dismiss the records of a slew of Strasbourg officials spending over a month attempting to deal with this problem. Speaking of, let's actually talk about the link to St. Vitus for a bit, the namesake of what the disease used to be called historically. St. Vitus was a Christian martyr from Sicily, killed by the Romans, and is the patron saint of comedians, actors, and dancers. He was widely prayed to in medieval Europe, and his feast day is the 15th of June. An interesting detail, no? Now, many dancing plagues were said to have started and ended at shrines of St. Vitus. There's clearly a religious element in the telling of these accounts, if not the history of them. Could it be like last week's Wendigo psychosis, a culturally induced phenomenon? The Dancing Plague of Strasbourg started on some unspecified day in June. Mid to late June is when St. Vitus is traditionally honoured. St. Vitus was traditionally associated with dancing manias and plagues. Coincidence? I don't think so. I don't think, to be clear, that the actual St. Vitus came down from heaven and smote the unfaithful with the Dancing Plague. What I do think, though, is that for whatever reason the dancing started, many of those dancers involved were motivated by a desire or a psychosis related to St. Vitus. Despite the differences in the cases across history, there are some common factors that can help us pin down a potential cause. The first is that the disease seemed to manifest strongly during times of hardship. In some instances, the dancing seemed to have some semblance of organisation, with the dancers travelling from place to place. But even in those instances, onlookers described the dancers as being effectively unconscious, not at all in control of their actions. 
In Italy, a similar phenomenon occurred, believed to have been caused by the poisoning of a spider or a scorpion, aptly named tarantism. A genre of music, the tarantella, was composed to be used in the aiding of sufferers, like in Strasbourg. I mentioned the Italian phenomenon because, strangely, in both cases, certain colours appeared to trigger the sufferers, red in the case of St. Vita's Dance and black in the cases of tarantism. I mentioned earlier the factor of women. Some sources report that in general women were more affected by dancing plagues than men, but this isn't necessarily borne out in the historical record. It could be a revisionist change, made by historians eager to associate women with hysteria, which is absolutely something that historians in the 1800s had an interest in. The Strasbourg plague seemed to be mostly dancing. In other plagues, the behaviour of those affected varied very wildly. Most would dance silently, but some would sing, some would make animal noises, and some even devolved into making lewd gestures and even having sex in the street. Whether this was the same thing or a different thing, I really don't know. They also all seemed to peter out at the same time. By the 1500s they hit their zenith, but the end of the 1600s, after that there's basically no cases left. Now that that's covered, let's get into the theories. The main theory is, of course, mass psychogenic illness. It's historically attested, with examples as recent as the near modern day, and explains a whole host of strange historical occurrences. Why exactly a large group of people all start acting in a similar way and experiences a similar mania is unknown. It is basically used as a catch-all phrase to describe when a large group of people start experiencing the same symptoms all at once with no precursor physical ailment to affect that change. Therefore, one can assume that there may be a psychosomatic element. If you believe you're affected, you become affected. Thus, exposure to the afflicted is counted as a cause for those who haven't been affected already. Perhaps it's evolutionary. When one person yawns, it spreads through the group. The suggestion for that is that yawning causes a sleepy person to briefly awaken more, and thus it's a group defense mechanism. In a similar vein, when one person is sick, it prompts vomiting in all others. Not just because it's gross, but because evolutionarily, if I ate the bad berries and I'm sick, you might also have eaten them, and so your body will try to preemptively purge them. So maybe you see the group dancing and your brain says, hey, there's no way they're all doing that weird thing for literally zero reason, so I should get in on that, and all of a sudden you're possessed with the dancing as well. But even MPI doesn't fully explain how it started. It may explain why the groups got involved and how it spread, but why did Frau Trofea start dancing in the first place? One often suggested and often disputed cause is a little-known illness called ergotism. Ergot is a fungus that can grow on rye bread in particular and wheats and cereals in general, and was fairly commonly eaten in the Middle Ages. Now, ergot can make you quite badly sick, but the side effects are interesting. Not only do you experience the usual food poisoning stuff, vomiting, diarrhea, cramps, muscle pain, yada yada yada, it also contains a compound that is very extremely similar to lysergic acid diethylamide, also known as LSD. So consuming ergot in a raw form as a starving peasant might do to assuage their starvation, can basically cause you to have an acid trip, replete with hallucinations and strange compulsions. In fact, ergotamine, the psychoactive element in ergot, is what LSD was originally synthesized from. But ergotism isn't always the favoured answer. John Waller, mentioned earlier, argues that ergotism wouldn't be able to compel you to dance for days on end, as you would eventually pass the toxins and the acid trip would end. Sufferers of dancing mania dance continuously, without pauses, for days and days and days until they simply collapsed or even died. So ergotism might explain other strange mania, but it might not explain this one. 
Instead, the cause could be waterborne. The vast majority of the outbreaks occurred in the valleys of the Rhine and Moselle rivers, which share the same water supply but vary very wildly in climate and cuisine. But if that's the case, what could it be? Maybe some other psychoactive agent infected the water supply, thus causing more and more people to dance without a cause? I have no evidence to back that up, that's just speculation. Waller proposes that the plagues are probably stress-related. As mentioned, that area at the time of the plague was indeed, throughout the Middle Ages and Renaissance, under a lot of stress. From wars and famines to plagues of other kinds, such as the infamous Black Death that had not too long ago passed through the area, more people would have been barely surviving from one disaster to the next. Moreover, this was a time of great superstition. Humans have always been that way to a greater or lesser extent, but the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance were times of great change, and that scared a lot of people. In terms of those psychological causes, chorea has been suggested, an involuntary movement of the hands, feet, arms, and legs that looks like dancing, but that doesn't match the historical accounts which are there to be believed make it very clear that this wasn't just random motions that seemed to be dancing, this was actual intentional dancing. So what caused the dancing plague of Strasbourg? It's got to be a combination of things, that's for sure. I'm partial to ergotism, or some other accidental ingestion of a psychotropic substance, for the case of Fratrophea at least, It explains to me why one person might start dancing in a strange way all of their own volition. And I do think you could keep dancing long after the effects had worn off because of psychosomatic reasons. If you've been dancing strangely and you gather a crowd of a dozen people, all of whom believe that you are possessed by St. Vetus's boon or curse, if you've recently been hallucinating in a major way with no discernible cause, you might be inclined to believe that, and that would keep you dancing long after you would have just stopped otherwise. That said, it doesn't fully explain the regional issue. How could the plague seem to follow rivers rather than crop or climate regions? But could there not be a way for a river to carry a psychotropic element? Maybe a gotamine infected a waterway? My biochemistry isn't that great, so I couldn't say one way or the other if such a thing is possible. MPI can't of course be ignored either, as it goes far beyond this instance. From the laughing plague of Tanganyika in 1962, to various mass witnessings of miracles, which were all reported differently in the specifics but similar in the broad strokes, to dancing plagues. Mass psychogenic illness is one of the weirdest things on the planet. Large groups of people can start acting irrationally for no reason whatsoever, and be powered by their own mania. I am, however, of the opinion that there is an evolutionary component to that. If you see a group acting in a weird way, your brain will convince you that it must be for a reason, and therefore you join in. If you've got existing cultural ideas or superstitions, like the ideas of St. Vetus, that would help to reinforce that decision, so much the better. And after that, it's just a matter of time before the disease spreads like a wildfire. Of course, the times can't be understated either, it is said that droughts and famines back then were bad even by the standards of the day. The 1374 plague happened very soon after the worst of the Black Death had hit Europe. These were times when people's brains would have been stuck in survival mode, whilst death seemingly lurked around every corner and nobody, from prince to pauper, was being spared. It therefore stands to reason that with people's brains so wired for looking to any sign of a potential problem, when someone starts doing something weird you would immediately latch on, just in case there's a good reason to. So, is there a lesson we can learn from the dancing plague of Strasbourg? Not really. 
other than weird stuff happens sometimes, and it's all one can do to try and adapt to the new situation. For the people of Strasbourg and Arkin and all the other various dancing plagues, it would have seemed extremely strange. And I thought it was quite interesting when I was looking into the story that I saw that the first instinct of the uh, Burgermeisters, the council members, the clergy, the scientists, but what passed for scientists in those days, went and gathered together. The first thing they did wasn't to blame superstitious reasons. They discussed it, to be fair, uh, they did discuss as to whether there might be an astrological cause, or a lunar cause, or a religious cause, or any of those many other spurious causes, but then they decided that it was due to a scientific reason. Admittedly, their scientific reasoning was completely wrong, and they didn't do really any testing to try and verify it, but I think that turning point is what you start to see, which is quite interesting, that sort of fulcrum, where you have that renaissance mindset of, well, we're going to try and do this in a scientific way. It ended up massively backfiring because their science wasn't very good and they weren't very rigorous and they didn't bother to test things properly, but at least they decided to look for an explanation that was beyond the superstitious, the supernatural. And I'm sure a lot of people on the ground at the time, a lot of those afflicted by the dancing plague and a lot of those with loved ones who were the afflicted, were searching for answers in the realm of the spiritual or the supernatural or the superstitious. And I thought it was very interesting that the powers that were decided not to go down that route, or that that wasn't the correct route. And whether or not that was a product of the times, that being 1518, quite firmly then entering and being in the early Renaissance period, and the introduction of, I guess, what you could call Enlightenment values, it was quite a ways off in Europe at that time. The full Enlightenment wouldn't be for at least another hundred years. But what you did start seeing, what you did start having, in Europe at least at the time, was a worldview that was much more predicated around the idea that you could ask questions and probe those questions and do experiments and find out the answer to those questions, rather than simply accepting everything as having a prima facie given explanation. Of course, at the time, it would have been well recognized in the minds of the people attempting to deal with the situation, the St. Vitus element, that it's St. Vitus's dance, that it is a curse or in some cases I think perhaps a boon depending on your perspective given down by St. Vetus in presumably punishment for wrongdoing and that it is cured by migrating to a shrine of St. Vetus and dancing there until the plague is lifted or until the afflicted drops dead from exhaustion. That would have definitely been on the minds of the people attempting to solve the problem but they didn't default to that explanation. They decided to go for something else and again although it did backfire quite spectacularly they weren't necessarily to know that it was going to backfire spectacularly. Obviously, with hindsight, we can see if you put people who are dancing in a way that seems contagious on a big stage in front of other people who are dancing and you give them musicians and you put them in front of a crowd that that is going to spread the dancing plague, that wasn't necessarily immediately obvious to the people at the time. Perhaps they thought if it was too much hot blood, get the hot blood out and the disease will go away. It's, it's quite simple, I suppose, in that sort of logical progression kind of way. So if there's any sort of lesson to take away from the Dancing Plague of Strasbourg, it's try new things. They might not always work, but sometimes it's definitely better than wallowing in the old way of doing things, because even though they didn't provide really any kind of solution to the Dancing Plague and it just kind of disappeared and now we're left with this weird gap in history, a period of about 400 years or so, maybe more, where you have these dancing plagues as a not infrequent occurrence that we just have nothing to account for them, 
really, other than mass psychogenic illness. We don't really have a good explanation because nobody was trying to explain them. It became accepted for a while that, oh, well, this is just a St. Vetus thing. That's just the way that it goes. But then towards the end of the period, people started thinking, well, maybe it's not just this um, plague sent down by St. Vetus. Maybe it's actually got a more physical and more natural explanation to it. And, you know, again, they were wrong on the lines of their thinking. It being hot blood, we know that's not really a thing, at least not in a medical sense. But at the time, that was the height of their medicinal science, and I suppose kudos for trying to find a new way to explain these sorts of things, because really that's the only way you can future-proof yourself if you're trying to record a mystery in the correct way to have it be analysed by future historians or amateur historians, as the case may be in my instance, to try and have people find a solution to something that you yourself can't find a solution to. There's a large number of mysteries, some of which we may end up covering on this show, where the solution seems so close, so tangible, if only crucial evidence wasn't thrown away, like in the case of Amelia Earhart, where the bones that may well have belonged to her were discarded simply because they didn't initially seem to fit the profile, they were then regarded as useless, but if they were kept even for the sake of a contingency, it might have provided light later down the line. And so I think the reason behind all the recording of the evidence for the Dancing Plague of Strasbourg, the fact that we have so much evidence, so much writing and accrediting and documentation, whether or not it was future-proofing on the part of the people who were recording the events, definitely it would have been for some of the historians among them. I think that was definitely a master stroke, and that's what helps us try and speculate on it today, because there were so many other of these plagues that weren't well recorded, that were written down and were spoken about, and that we know most of them probably must have happened because we have that anecdote of the Dancing Plague of Strasbourg and the earlier Plague of Arkin that we do know are confirmed historical events to give us background for the other events which weren't as well recorded. So really, the lesson to take away is just try and be scientific in your way of doing things. It's the better approach as opposed to being dogmatic about any old superstition you may have or old way of doing things. It definitely helps. And I think at the end of the day, that's all something we can agree is generally a good thing. This has been Demystified with Ashley Styles. This episode was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting from Wizard Studios. Music and production crate.com. Go to productioncrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.